electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, Johnson & Johnson has taken a big step forward in the race for a coronavirus vaccine. J&J chief scientific officer. The single dose of the vaccine could give protection very quickly within 15 days. And with that, uh, could be very useful in the uh, emergency use. And start your engines, your electric engines, that is. We're recapping Tesla's highly anticipated battery day. What's ludicrous mode right now? This makes ludicrous look ludicrous. And unpacking Nikola, the other electric vehicle company sweeping headlines this week with former Ford CEO, Mark Fields. I wouldn't invest until they have an investor day that clarifies a lot of their capabilities and their plans going forward. Those stories, plus a jet, a yacht, and a sell-off that has Wall Street buzzing. Billionaire Ron Perlman's mystery plans for his cash with CNBC's wealth reporter Robert Frank. He is the ultimate financial street fighter. You never want to count out Perlman. He's so creative when it comes to capital. It's Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. Happy fall. We're on Wednesday, right? It's Wednesday morning. Is it Wednesday morning or Thursday morning? She's Louise. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tesla holding its first ever battery day with Elon Musk taking center stage and a lot of people talking about it now. Phil LeBeau joins us with some of the highlights. Phil. Andrew, mixed reaction from analysts regarding Battery Day. On one hand, you've got people like RBC Capital saying, overall, we believe Tesla's long-awaited Battery Day disappointed, elevated expectations. And then you've got Piper Sandler saying, the event did a good job of summarizing the reasons why Tesla's advantage is insurmountable. Elon Musk, over the course of an hour last night, was focused primarily on driving down battery costs. And that's the goal for Tesla over the next three years in particular, but longer term, they believe that Tesla will have a battery cost advantage. Now, current energy research estimates that currently Tesla has the lowest battery cell cost at $110. There you see GM and BYD. The curve is going down, and Tesla believes they can cut this by 56% over the next three years. Here is Elon Musk talking about the goal of becoming the best manufacturer. Eventually, every, every car company will have long-range electric cars. Um, I, you know, eventually every company will have autonomy, I think, but not every company will be uh, great at, at manufacturing. Uh, Tesla will be absolutely head and shoulders above anyone else in manufacturing. That is our goal. Big focus will be on the Tesla Gigafactory being built just outside of Austin, Texas. Longer range cells are the key to the Cybertruck, also to the semi that they're developing. Tesla's target increased the range by 54%. The orders are gigantic. So and we have like, I don't know, well over half a million orders, I think maybe six or 600,000. That's a lot, basically. We stopped counting. Um, so I, I think there's probably room for, I don't know, at least like a unit volume of like 250 to 300,000 a year, maybe more. 
Musk talking about the Cybertruck again. At least 600,000 orders is what he says currently for the Cybertruck. They also plan on developing and building a car that they can sell for $25,000 eventually, Andrew. And the statement that I heard the most from people about last night, more than a few analysts sent me text messages saying, Elon Musk expects to sell 20 million cars a year at some point in the future. Just for a point of reference, Andrew, the most vehicles ever sold annually was Toyota, I think, two years ago at 11 million. And they want to do 20 million, dollars, 20 million vehicles a year at some point right. in the future. Phil, let me ask you, because I got, uh, you know, my phone was lighting up with texts as well from, from various investors and the like. And one of the points that was made about the, the $25,000 car headline is that, that Elon Musk had, had made a similar statement back in 2018. Yes. So, so how, do, how do you square it up? I mean, he's probably closer I, I, to being able to produce something like that today than he was then. But um, right. how do you handicap they, well, it? Well, look, they, they have long said, Elon Musk has long said that the goal is to make a $25,000 car. So that is not a new target that is out there. Originally, when they said $25,000, he said, look, at least we want to get it down so it's an affordable mass market car. And you could make the, the contention that the, the Model 3 is that, that you are looking at a, a vehicle that's somewhere in that range of thirty-five dollars to $45,000. Now, some people at home will listen to that and say, wait a second, that's not mass market. You can, you can go lower than $35,000. Um, so this is not a new target that has been set out there, Andrew. And also keep in mind, Elon Musk does have a track record, and he even admits it, of saying, we're going to do this. Right. And it right. doesn't actually happen on the time frame that they said that it's going to happen. Volkswagen specifically, but other, other car companies are bringing so many EVs online yes. next year. How much do you think that really represents a competitive threat right now to Tesla? Not in the next six months or a year, but Volkswagen, which is showing an electric SUV uh, that they will be building here in the United States, they're showing that today. It's called the ID4. You've got that. You've got GM coming out with, I think, 20 EV models over the next couple of years. So in the next year, will Tesla lose its crown as the king of EV sales? No. Could it be threatened three years down the road after you start to see these models get out there and people say, hey, I've got a different choice other than Tesla? Yeah, that's a possibility. Okay. Phil LeBeau, always great to see you and get your insights on all of it. Thanks. You bet. I'll tell you what, the one thing that caught my attention today after doing all the, you know, all the background on Tesla, and I mean, it, it's a little bit too arcane to really go into too much about the battery development. It really is. We, we can talk about what the end result is, but the, the kind of stuff that, that, that Elon talks about in terms of materials and gigawatts and how much things cost and where they're going to get, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll analyze it based on what it means for a $25,000 Tesla or, or further range or cheaper batteries, which, you know, there's all that stuff. Right. But did you see the Tesla plaid? This is what got me, and I got to tell you, it's expensive. You see the Tesla Plaid zero to sixty. Did you see the the yes un, under two How seconds? How quickly they it, yes. I mean, for me. Do you really need that, end? Joe? Do you no, really I need think that? I, I think I'd hurt myself and other people. That's that's Who's, if you ever if you ever did not, not doing that, I'd wrap it around some pole or something. And that is that is think about what that is. I don't know if you've ever Thanks. if I've ever felt that type uh, of acceleration G force because. 1,001, 1,002, well, boom, you're going 60. I mean, that is... That is even a, if you do... I don't know what... 
What's ludicrous mode right now? Because I remember dri- I did a test is, drive in a Tesla a couple ludicrous. years ago. Yeah, and, this makes ludicrous get, look ludicrous. You know, yeah. Right. So right. I, it was very ludicrous at the time. I will tell you one thing. I, I, when, when you go on a long trip, that's, I, I never realized that. You don't see a lot of the Model S out there uh, on like the uh, heady on the interstate. You, you still don't. And, but 520 miles. Because of driving. 520 right. miles would do right. it. Although, you know, if you're going 800, you're definitely going to have to stop and, yeah, and I, find I was going to say, I place. just drove longer than that. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. But, uh, but, I, but when I heard that, it's like that is faster than any, you know, gas-powered cars. That's tough that you don't get that kind of acceleration unless it's Did like. Did you see, I mean, and, and, and you're right, Joe, that you wouldn't be able to do this in most places. The only place that would be safe to do that is where you have an open roadway where there's to. really nobody around. Well, and, you'd want, and, no, you could do it. I just a story it. last week about a guy who was, he got pulled over in Canada going like 100 miles an hour or something, sleeping. He had the front seat pushed back all the way because, again, you know, that, yeah. it, and, and Tesla will tell you, you are not supposed to be using the auto drive feature that I think way. it would be, uh, it's like yeah. you give people stupid options. And, and but it would be surreal people. because the, the maximum speed, okay, zero to 60 in two seconds, maximum speed, 200 miles an hour, and no sound. I mean, it would just be surreal. Uh, but I was thinking, wow, if, if I could scrape together 135 grand, it'd probably cost more than that, too, uh, wouldn't it? To, I think probably. And then there's probably a waiting list for this thing, I would imagine. The play, I don't know how long it would take to get. And then you got, there still are, it's tough to get these, these batteries. I don't know. That was what was a little disconcerting, I think, tempted. last night. I, I'm What's hearing that? it. You're tempted. Oh, I you're was. You sound tempted. I was. And then I was wondering, will it be the, I like the body style of the Model S, but I'm getting a little bit, I, I'd like a little bit of an upgrade. Um, will it be the same body style? Do we know? No, I don't know. It's a pretty good body style. Got a lot of orders for those trucks, too, which when we start seeing those things on the road, every time you see one, you're going to point at it, I think. In other electric vehicle news, Nikola Motor Company has come speeding onto the electric vehicle scene since it began in Utah six years ago. Founder Trevor Milton was taking on Tesla and appropriately named his company after the same 19th and 20th century inventor. This week, Nikola announced Milton's abrupt departure from the company, a curious development when you consider the last two weeks they've had. 13 days ago, we were talking about Nikola because the EV upstart announced a partnership with General Motors, and the two company heads, Trevor Milton from Nikola and Mary Barra, CEO of GM, actually came on Squawk Box to share the good news. Throughout our agreement with GM, we're going to see somewhere between a 4 and $5 billion savings just in battery costs alone. This is a wonderful validation of our technology and then bringing uh, our engineering and manufacturing expertise to the table. And yet, 13 days later, Milton is out. His resignation follows a report by short seller Hindenburg Research, accusing Milton of making false statements about the company's technology to attract investors and deals with automakers. The news hit Nikola shares hard, but many analysts believe Milton's departure is positive for the company, suggesting it'll boost focus on the company's goals. So what happens to that GM deal? Nikola was supposed to hand General Motors $2 billion in stock, giving them an 11% stake in the company. The transaction was supposed to close at the end of this month, and according to GM, it's still on track. Nikola, as of two weeks ago, was valued at $15 billion, which is hefty for a company whose electric truck still hasn't begun commercial production. 
Here's Andrew kicking off a conversation with Mark Fields, TPG Capital Senior Advisor and former CEO of Ford. Mark, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, help us unpack this, unravel it, and w- what it all means. Um, you know, you sort of look out at what's going to A, happen to Nikola, but also what you think the implications are for GM right now. Well, let's talk about GM first. I mean, the reason they went into this uh, this partnership with them was a couple of fold. One is, first off, is they absolutely need to drive down the cost of their new Ultium batteries and improve the profitability of their uh, electrified business. So for them, what they get out of this uh, arrangement is first they get more scale for these batteries, which will help drive down the cost, improve their profitability. It will allow them to use some of their capacity that they have for some of these dedicated plants that they're going to dedicate to electrified vehicles. And they get to share in the upside in the Nikola equity. Uh, but obviously, you know, with the issues that's come up with, with Nikola, uh, Mary Barra is probably asking herself a number of different questions. And her board is probably asking a number of different questions, such as, you know, did my team conduct a full due diligence of Nikola's capability and talent? Um, given the statement of work that they have, GM has, to bring out 20 electrified vehicles over the next two to three years, does she want to dedicate her engineering and manufacturing resources, some of them, to, to the Nikola project? Uh, the next one is, is the Nikola brand now damaged? Uh, because, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be selling their vehicles, and right. you could argue that Nikola is now more a design and marketing company. Is the brand healthy? And then last question for her is, Listen, you know, in a contract manufacturing, uh, the, the, the company that's contracting, in this case, Nikola, usually does the testing and the design. And if there's any problems with that and there's quality problems ultimately in that vehicle, is that going to be bad for GM's brand or their ultimate brand? So, right. in essence, she's weighing the, the benefits versus the risks. Well, so that's the question. Do you try to get out of this deal at, at this point? How much of a black eye is it? For GM, you know, one of the questions that I tried to ask Mary the morning that that they announced this transaction was how they had come up with and how comfortable they felt with the valuation of Nikola, given that that so much of uh, the transaction revolved around them actually taking a stake in the business. So they had to do some valuation work uh, and therefore do some real diligence uh, on the company. It's not just, you know, getting an outsourced company to to, to effectively pay you to 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 do stuff for you. They were actually taking a, a piece of the pie here. Well, yeah, she, you know, she absolutely is getting with her business development folks, her head of product development and her head of manufacturing and saying, listen, I want to double check this due diligence. At the same time, remember, uh, Steve Gursky is going to become the executive chairman there. And Steve worked at GM for a number of years. He's worked side by side with Mary. So Mary's probably getting on the phone with Steve and saying, hey, is this a real company? Is this does this company have the capabilities beyond just a prototype and a business plan uh, to help fulfill the obligations of this uh, this arrangement. So right now, I think there's little downside for GM, but I think she has to double check on all those things to make sure she wants to continue with this commitment. I think Becky's got a question for you, Mark. Okay, hi Becky. Yeah, hey Mark, what? Hey Mark, good to see you. What are Mary's options if she decides that it's not? I mean, they've, they've put this investment in. Could she unravel the deal or do you lose what you've already done with this? I, I guess that would be my question. Is it, is it possible to even unravel this? 
Well, it's my understanding it wasn't finalized. And, and just, you know, uh, to, to clarify, they've put no investment in here. Uh, what they have done is they said they would provide their Ultium batteries technology as well as their fuel cell technology and do some of the engineering and manufacturing of the, te of the uh, uh, Nikola products. So I think she has the options right now of either saying, listen, we're going to finalize this agreement and I'm going to dedicate the engineering and the manufacturing resources to work with Nikola to bring this out. Or if, you know, it's very clear they have a lot of off ramps uh, for this agreement. And I think it'd be no skin off her back if she decides, you know, the due diligence turns up something that's lighter than what they actually expected. She can get out of it and GM can go on its way. If, if it's easy to do, I guess that raises more questions for the Nikola shareholders, because what happens to Nikola if GM walks away from this? Well, I think you really have to. Uh, there's a lot of noise around Nikola. But, you know, the bottom line is if you read their SEC disclosures, and particularly around the time they went public in June, they essentially said that uh, uh, Milton, who was the executive chairman who just left, was the source of many, if not most, of the ideas around the execution uh, driving the company. And so you have to ask yourself two questions. One, were they misrepresenting on that? And if the answer was no, then investors have to ask themselves, well, you know, what have they actually invested in? And I think there's a, a lesson here for any investor investing in a SPAC. They have to ask themselves the question, is the technology or product or service real? Uh, and also is the governance mature? Because, you know, when you go public and you're under that white hot light of uh, public shareholders, you have to have very mature processes for control and governance and disclosures. OK, so, Mark, here's here's the, the I don't know, maybe it's the several billion dollar question, depending on how much the, the company's valued at, at this particular moment. Now that you're also not just an operator, but you're in the investment business with TPG, at what price would you buy into Nikola, given the fact that it still doesn't have a product and revenue associated with it? Well, you know, at first, in answer to your question, Andrew, at, right now I wouldn't buy. And the reason I wouldn't buy is I think one of the first things uh, the new executive chairman there needs to do is first he has to resolve these DOJ and these SEC uh, investigations and focus on the business plan and, and deliver the products. But uh, secondly, what I would suggest, and the, I wouldn't invest until they have an investor day that clarifies a lot of their capabilities and their plans going forward and the milestones that they're la laying out. Mark Fields, it's uh, always a pleasure to spend time with you. You know the ins and outs of this industry better than anybody. And uh, it's a, it was a great conversation. So thank you. We hope to uh, talk to you again very soon. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Johnson & Johnson's moving ahead in the race for a coronavirus vaccine. J&J's Chief Scientific Officer, Dr. Stovalls. With a single dose injection, we'll learn in the next two months in a very large population what safety and efficacy will be. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Johnson & Johnson announcing that the first participants have been dosed in a, a new phase three COVID-19 vaccine trial. President Trump just tweeting about it saying, uh, big news, numerous great companies are seeing fantastic results. The FDA must move quickly. Let's get to Meg Terrell with a very special guest. Good morning again, Meg. Good morning, Joe. And that guest is Dr. Paul Stoffels, J&J's chief scientific officer. Dr. Stoffels, thanks for being with us this morning. You know, I want to start on the fact that you guys are taking the first vaccine that only requires potentially one dose um, into this major phase three trial for COVID-19. Tell us about how you reached that decision that it could be strong enough with just one dose based on you know what data you've seen so far. Thank you for, for having me in the program. Yes, we are studying one dose. And it's not just uh, overnight that we did that. We have been working for a long time on this vaccine platform and studied in many diseases, single dose and multiple doses. And we learned that a single dose of the vaccine could give protection very quickly within 15 days. And with that, uh, could be very useful in the uh, emergency use. We did a phase one study where we studied this uh, in the, uh, since mid-July. And we confirmed that we have a very good safety, but also a very good immune response. And that made us decide to, to ask the FDA for permission. And they uh, allowed us to start a phase three study with a single dose uh, in a very large population, 60,000 people we are going to vaccinate. Uh, you're also, though, running a separate trial in the UK, which Andrew noted earlier, uh, will test two doses. Why also be testing two when you're going forward with a 60,000 participant trial with one dose? Yeah, we'll, we'll test a single dose will be very useful in a very quick rollout in the world for preventing immediate transmission. We also are studying booster dose, so we could um, we could learn about what is the long-term lifelong protection. And almost every vaccine will will need a boost, and we will evaluate boost at two months, but also boost at six and twelve months to see what's the best long-term program for long long-term protection. And that's why uh, we study multiple but we kick off with a large-scale uh, single dose to uh, go into emergency use as quickly as possible. One question that vaccine experts have about your approach, of course, is that you're using a harmless virus, an adenovirus, to deliver the genetic material of the coronavirus to our immune cells, uh, but that our immune systems could actually develop um, antibodies against the vector itself, thereby making it more difficult to get efficacy with future boosts if you have to dose you know, again each year. Um, how do you look at that potential? Will you be able to give this as a potential annual yeah, shot we if we need to? Yeah, uh, Mick, we studied that in uh, several different situations, uh, both with an HIV vaccine, we give four times an A26 vector over one year time. In uh, other uh, areas, we also did that. and that, But we learned that the, the vector itself is not generating that much antibodies and not that much immunogenicity. It's the product what the vector produces in the body, the spike protein, which is the core for generating the protection for COVID-19, which is generating the, the, uh, the, the reaction. And so we are comfortable that we can use it for a prime boost. We have done that many times in different areas. More than 100,000 people have been vaccinated in studies and deployment of this vector, and we know a lot and we are comfortable that that will not be the case. Hey, doctor, I, I know that the, the, the testing that you're doing takes place on lots of people age 18 and up, and I also realize it's not something where you, vac or you test this stuff out on children really any more than you would on pregnant women, but when can we see the vaccinations for children? How will we know if it's safe, if it has any 
sort of, I mean, COVID reacts differently in children than it does in older people. I just wonder, without testing it, how will we know what the safety ramifications are for children? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to test that. But we first want to establish uh, the efficacy and safety in the, in, the, in, the, in the 18 to 55 population and then start dosing down. We have done that with Ebola. We have gone to very young ages, uh, starting one year. So we know that the vector in that, in that population is very well tolerated. But we now need to first learn about the COVID, uh, the, the vector, the vaccine containing the COVID part before we go to children. The same with pregnancy. We have studied extensively in pregnant women in our Ebola trials with at 26 and also there we, uh, we have seen uh, good safety. Uh, but we first have to know what the COVID, uh, the different, the different COVID uh, protein does to, uh, to, to, the, um, to the safety and the efficacy. So if we are looking at early next year, potentially, for the vaccines being available for adults, how long before children can get vaccinated in, in the best case scenario? Well, I think in the first, second quarter, uh, we should have data on children um, once we have enough data on adults to dose down in children. Um, so that uh, this is going fast because with a single dose injection, we'll learn in the next two months in a very large population what safety and efficacy will be, uh, at least from a biomarker perspective, later on from a clinical perspective. So when that's known, we'll move into children. And uh, early next year, mid next year, we'll, between early and mid next year, we'll find it out. Dr. Stoffels, it's Meg again. I want to ask you also about, you know, an increasing problem we're seeing, uh, some concerns about the speed with which these trials are moving and an increasing potential hesitancy from the public to get the vaccine. We have new uh, research out this morning from a poll from CNBC and Change Research showing that increasingly Americans are wary about getting a vaccine uh, once it becomes available. And you heard Joe's inter introduction citing a tweet from the president uh, telling the FDA to move quickly on these. Uh, and there has been so much tying of the election to results on uh, the front runner vaccines. There is you know, concern about political pressure. Um, how convinced are you that the U.S. regulators and the U.S. government uh, will ensure safety and efficacy of these vaccines before pushing them through to emergency authorization? Well, I'm very confident in the regulators worldwide that they will uh, that will that they first want to see good data before they will approve. But we also have our own principles. We are developing medicines and vaccines for more than 60, 70 years. And we always stay to our own principles of making sure that the benefit risk has to be very well established before we bring a, a vaccine or a, or a medicine to, uh, to patients. So we will, that's why we study a large population. We study all parts of the population, elderly, uh, young, but also people with comorbidities. So to learn how the vaccine behaves. And we will be very transparent with everything we do to the larger population. We will publish our protocol, we will publish our diversity, we'll publish the data. Our phase one, two study, which was done, which was used to start this study, will be published imminently in the next 48 uh, hours. So um, we hope that by that, by being very transparent, but also very adhering to our own principles of safety and efficacy, that we will not release a vaccine before we and the authorities are confident that it's safe to use for people widely. Uh, over, overall in the world. Dr. Stoffels, thanks for being with us this morning, and we look forward to hearing uh, more of your updates, including seeing your Phase 1-2 data hopefully later today. Thanks again. Coming up on Squawk Pod, billionaire banker and businessman Ron Perlman is liquidating billions of dollars in assets. 
Is he under pressure or does he have a new project in his sights? CNBC's wealth reporter Robert Frank has the story. You never think that somebody with 12 billion or 19 billion dollars in wealth could ever be forced or even driven to sell anything under pressure. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Dorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Billionaire Ron Perlman is in sell-off mode, unloading hundreds of millions in art, his private jet, and several other investments. And Robert Frank joins us with a closer look at Perlman's dwindling fortune and what's going on behind the scenes. Robert. Good morning, Andrew. His net worth has fallen by about half from $12 billion to about $6 billion in just three years. He was famed as a corporate takeover artist, but now Ronald Perlman is selling. Now, his holding company, McAndrews & Forbes, is selling many of its stakes in portfolio companies, including AM General, that's the maker of Humvees, his stake in Scientific Games, a Flavors Holdings Company, and Retail Me Not, that's an online coupon company. Now, on the personal side, He's quietly shopping around his private jet, his 257-foot yacht, and parts of his massive art collection that valued at well over a billion dollars. Sotheby's auctioning off a Miro for more than $28 million. And this Gerhard Richter is about to come up for sale for $18 million. Now, bankers say Perlman has a large network of loans from Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and several others. Shares of Revlon, that is by far his biggest holding. They have fallen by over 70% just this year. The company has about $3 billion in debt. Now, Perlman's saying these sales are not a sign of distress, but part of a planned downsizing and capital raise driven by what he calls the unprecedented economic environment. He says, I've been very public about my intention to reduce leverage, streamline operations, sell some assets, and convert those assets to cash in order to seek investment opportunities. So, Andrew, he's suggesting here that he's raising cash in part to buy something else. We'll see in the coming months whether he is, in fact, the buyer that we all know him to be or whether this is some kind of debt-driven asset sale. Back to you. What, Robert, what, what are you hearing, though? Because, obviously... You know, I I can't go a day or two without having some conversation with somebody who wants to mention Ron Perlman and and raise the question, why is he really selling? Is he really downsizing? Uh, Is he going to use that money, as you said, to buy something? Is he going to use that money because he he owes money to the banks and, and therefore is selling things like like an airplane, like a boat? Yeah, 
I agree, Andrew. I hear bankers speculate and talk all the time. He is such a source of fascination and intrigue on Wall Street because he's such a huge part of that, the whole ecosystem. Now, you know, you and I know he is the ultimate financial street fighter. You never want to count out Perlman. He's so creative when it comes to capital, when it comes to using debt. On the other hand, I have never seen or rarely seen a billionaire sell on the business side assets and the personal side so quickly without there being some kind of debt pressure. And, and you talk to folks on Wall Street and they say there are a lot of sort of interlocking leverage loans where let's say you've got the shares in Revlon pledged against McAndrews and Forbes debt and who knows how the art is leveraged and where that money is being used. So um, you're right, a lot of speculation and, and we just don't know yet um, where the money is, who holds the debt, and how serious it is. It's amazing, though. Uh, we don't think that it can happen to, uh, to billionaires, right? I guess, it, you know, we, we, sometimes we see people that have, I don't know, whether it's actors or, or, or athletes or something, and it, they make so much money. It's like, what do you mean you have $400,000 in assets and $40 million in, But it can have, my question, though, has to do with Bill Bouquet. Do you know that restaurant? Is he selling? Yes. A, is he selling Bill Bouquet or the one across what's the one across the street? I can't remember the name of it. You don't know whether, whether those are, uh, are and you, you can imagine those are having a hard time too right now without, um, I mean, I actually get emails from Bill Bouquet, please take out, please take out. I go, well, I live in New Jersey. Yeah, but that, actually, actually, Bill Bouquet, actually Bill Bouquet has, has done a great job and they're doing okay with the outdoor stuff. Right. Um, they built an amazing setup there. So, so I, think th I think that is the least of his problems right now. And I think he probably enjoys a meal there. But you're right, Joe. I mean, okay, he's down to $6 billion. We shouldn't feel sorry for Ronald Perlman. Well, if you owe 10, um, it's not but good. You're right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's that bad. But, no, I know. But you're know. right. It, you, never, you never think that somebody with $12 billion or $19 billion in wealth, whatever he had at the peak, could ever be, could ever be forced or even driven to sell anything under pressure. So uh, Andrew probably wants to know about that, tough. that party every year. Is that off, Andrew? What is that thing that out in the Hamptons? There's some big party. Is that? Have you been to that, Sorkin? You want to disclose that, or, or maybe not? Um, maybe you, you don't. I, I have I, not. I have not been to that party, but they stopped. But but in truth, and, and that was uh, that was for it, it, that, that party, which was for the Apollo. It was well, an honor of the Apollo, and they raised a lot of money big, for the Apollo over many many years. And I had not. I'd never been to it, but he stopped doing that party. Uh, about a year ago, and, and, and some people I remember, I hate to speculate about it, but were even, even, even signaling to issues then, so I don't know. I don't either. I'm trying to remember the name of that other one. Remember, uh, Boone Pickens ran through these issues a, a few times. You know, you, you bet big on things, and, and when you have conviction in, in, in the, the places you're putting your money, you bet big on these things, and there's a, liquidity a certain, problems can, can catch anybody. There's a certain real estate guy that, that is now doing something else with his uh, time that, that had some problems in the 90s, too. We don't need to mention any names, uh, but uh, he's kind of high profile. He went on to TV and now, you know, moved into politics uh, after that. Your buddy, Andrew, Trump had some liquidity problems early in, in the... Uh, oh, I forgot. I can't believe you didn't I forgot. <laughs> I was just, I was thinking of my buddies. I was thinking of all my friends, and I, yeah. I, I didn't. Oh, well, you didn't uh, think I, about him. Yeah. That was a shock. All right, good. All right. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. And if you've been listening to Squawk Pod from the very beginning, thank you so much. This week marks one year on this audio adventure. We're so happy to be on this 
Podacy with you. Squawk Box Broadcast is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin on weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And then tell your friends or tweet at Squawk CNBC or both. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.